you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 13. Genesis 3, 8 through 13. Now, before we begin again, I want to encourage you, coming up uh, Sunday the 27th, uh, we will be having uh, what is, uh, I mean, it says ministry fair, but do not think of carnival games. All right? That's not the fair we're having. It's a, what it is, it's a uh, time for the body to see what God is doing here, the different ministries we have, and also for us to call you to remind you that you've been called by God to use your talents and gifts that He has gifted you with for the furthering of the ministry. And so uh, we'd encourage you, uh, to st- we will have tables set up with um, basically, if you want to call it, the people that oversee those ministries there, and uh, give you an opportunity to walk through and see the things that God is doing here at the church and ways that you can uh, use those gifts that He's given you for His glory. And so I'd encourage you again to be praying right now. Uh, where uh, God would lead you in those areas. So, with that being said, uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, as we just in that last song walked through how you were the better Adam, you were the better Isaac, better Moses, and better David, dearly Father, thank you that you are, and that salvation is found in you and you alone. And now all of these characters in the Bible pointed us to you, that each one of them, even though that Earthly speaking, they seemed like they were great men doing many great things. All of them failed because they were sinners and desperately need of the Savior that only you could be. And so, dearly Father, help us as we see again, once again, the failure of humanity in this text today. Help it to point our eyes to you and to you alone. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. So in the 1990s, uh, there was a show that came out called Cops, and now I'm not going to sing the opening line to you about bad boys or things like that, if you were ever familiar with that TV show. Uh, But one of the things is I would watch the TV show Cops, they would pull people over and they would be investigating the car, and here was the line I heard over and over and over again. They would pull the person over, drugs would be found in the car, and you can already know whose drugs they were because the person would respond, those aren't my drugs, those are my friends. Because they never, even if they were the only one in the car, My friend left them in there when he left, right? There was just excuse after excuse. Now, I'm going to ask, I've asked uh, Dave Bender and Mac to help me here a little bit. Um, Both these guys have been involved in law enforcement to see if they can pick, and I didn't tell them, the top three reasons why people say they're speeding. All right, a little, little interaction here. We'll go with Mac first to see if he can get one. I'll tell you where they rank in the top three, then we'll go back to Dave next. All right, Mac, what do you think one of them is? Late for work, number two. All right, not number one yet. Late for work, Dave. Um, all right, that was actually number five. That didn't make the top three. All right, my my speedometer's not working. Do we have another one? Oh, very good. Number one. All right, now Dave, one last shot. See if we can get number three here. Uh, very very close. It was I was going with the rest of traffic. All right, this, everybody else was doing it, so, you know, I'm okay with it. Now, I was wondering what should be our proper response when we get pulled over for speeding, so I wrote it out here, and if you get pulled over, I would encourage you to use this, all right? So here we go. I did not plan well enough, officer, this morning. I was self-focused and did not pay attention to the speed limits around me, and so I decided that the law did not apply to me this morning on my way in. All right, try that. We'll see how well that gets you off the hook. You're just being honest that, you know, at that moment, the law didn't apply to me, and off I go down the road. 
It's interesting, the title of our passage, which we're going to read here in a second, we're going to see it, and I've entitled it, The Blame Game. And this game will be played by all of humanity from this day forward, moving all the way into even today. So let's look at the text here and start seeing what God has for us. Genesis 3, 18 through 13. 8, not 18, 8. They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And then he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, why, why, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you have given me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. It was interesting. I'll just tell you how beautiful the text of Scripture is. Even this morning as I was giving the, uh, the rest of you the number one sermon as I preached to an empty church here practicing the sermon, I came across even a line in here, something that I would love to dig into even more but didn't even have time to this week. Trees. All right, notice what Adam hides himself among. The trees. What did God give him as food? The trees, except for this one tree. And what is Adam? All of these gifts that God is giving him, he's hiding himself behind. You could probably do a whole ser sermon series on just trees of what Adam is doing and his interaction with trees and everything else. I was like, oh, that would have been a fun point, but we didn't deal with it. So that's for your own personal study of just where does Adam hide himself? Amongst the trees. Yeah, which that's for its own time. Let's look into the text, though. I just want to. I want to give you just an interesting understanding of what we see here already. And point number one is that sin, what is sin doing already? Adam and Eve, their sin has been exposed to them by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember, they ate of it and they realized their eyes were open to see good and evil. But what happened? Evil and its enslaving power takes over and rules in the heart. And they are no longer able to do anything spiritually good because evil has, if you want to call it, blinded them. Paul is going to tell us it caused them to be dead in their transgressions and sin incapable of doing anything spiritually good. And notice what it also does here. Point number one, again, sin drives man to hide from God. But isn't it interesting that notice Adam, in his own attempt, has already done something to try to deal with his nakedness, and that was make a loincloth out of a leaf. Again, tree analogy, that's its own issue. Make a, out of a leaf there, barely covering the bare essentials of literally their nakedness, incapable of it all. And God comes into the garden, and you would have thought that Adam, if he's really handled their nakedness issue, right, he could just boldly walk into the presence of God. I got this whole nakedness figured out, but what does he know? His sad attempt does not even do anything, so he's even got to hide himself among the trees. And we see here Adam and Eve hide, them because, hide themselves because they are naked, exposed before God. I want to take a moment here to remind ourselves, and I want to look at the way that sin drives us away from God. You'll see in your, in your um, notes there that there's three ways that roughly as humanity even now, that the heart likes to run from God. When the holiness and the standard of God comes into this world, mankind responds. And they re usually respond in three ways. Number one, they like to ignore it. So we'll ignore that it's happening. Usually this is done by either drugs or drinking to try to get rid of the situation, or we will just say, well, I don't believe that. Just utter disbelief that I don't believe in a God so I can ignore any of the moral standard that is very clear in front of us. 
So it was either drowned away with alcohol and drugs to try to get us to forget it for the moment, or it's ignored or it's handled in disbelief, all in that first category. Another thing we can do when we can't escape the true understanding of reality around us, the, the natural law that we would say God has written all over the place, what we try to do then is let's rename it or let's redefine it. And so if you want, we can, we've seen this happen with marriage. If we don't like the boundary that God has placed on it, let's just redefine it. It's seen also in the way we like to adjust, justify our own actions. So instead of when someone has an adulterous um, sin, we like to call that even now an affair or anything else. Like we like to downplay it to not make it as bad as what the Bible says because those words cut. And so if we can remove ourselves from these things by renaming it or redefining it, now sin is not really as bad as we really think it is. Or the third one, we like to judge ourselves by the standard of society. So if society says it's okay, we just go with it. And help us remember this, that popularity never determines morality. We said it last week, and I'll say it again. Popularity never determines morality. Morality for a biblical worldview and a biblical understanding of reality, morality is what God has said in His Word, and it does not change over the course of time, nor is it let up for a vote, is what exactly what Adam and Eve were wrestling with when the serpent said, did he really mean this by? Because what the, Eve was saying is, I am going to decide what I think the law of God is, not allowing the law of God to be the standard. She wanted to be the standard. And so what is happening in our culture, as Christians, we are getting sucked away by thinking that popularity now is determining morality because we're stand, if you stand firm on the Word of God, you don't have to take it up for a vote. It's the same today as it will be tomorrow and so forth and so on. But the way the heart runs from God is to, to number one again, ignore it, redefine it, or decide that society makes its own standard. Because when, when rational man runs from God, and the reasons that even the man runs from God is because the holiness of God is repulsive to the natural sinful heart of man. The holiness of God for the man who is not a follower of God, man in his natural state, which Adam is right now, he runs and he is repulsed by the things of God. Yet God, notice what we see here. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves amongst the trees. But the Lord called to the man. God, who is rich in mercy and grace, what does he do? He does not wait for Adam and Eve to come to him. He does not wait for Adam and Eve to get themselves, do a little better fig leaf thing, cover more than just the loincloth. He does not say to Adam and Eve, figure it out on your own. God is the initiator. God comes to them. This is one of the most beautiful things we see because we start to see the pattern of the gospel here. Helpless man, incapable of doing anything other than literally hide himself amongst the trees he's been called to care for. And what do we have? A gracious Savior. Adam, who could not save himself at all, he's starting to realize the main point of the gospel is you need a Savior, you can't do this on your own. But notice though, sadly... As sin is driving man away from God, when now man is confronted, if you want to say it in so many ways, as God starts to pin him down, and if you want to call it, pins Adam to the wall and now starts talking to him, what does Adam do? Point number two here, and this is where we're going to spend quite a bit of time on, is that sin drives Adam to blame his wife and others. Sin drives Adam to blame his wife and others. Notice here, interesting, there's a couple of order things that I'm still wrestling through the significance of them all. So here's what we have, some cool order. 
In sin, remember when sin came into the world, it went serpent to Eve to Adam. Now, when God's holding people responsible, it goes Adam, Eve, serpent. When sin is punished out, the consequences, it goes serpent, Eve, and Adam. And we'll deal with the significance of the second one. But the first one we're talking about here is when God goes to deal with the sin issue, he goes directly to Adam. And when he goes to Adam, one of the reasons he is going to Adam is because Adam is responsible. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But what I want to do is I want to start looking at what Adam has done, his actions and everything leading up to this point. I think it's time for us to go back and work our way just following Adam. Um, By the way, we're only going to talk to him slightly here. We will really lay into him, laying into ourselves when the curse is given later in the chapter. But I just want to walk us through where we are to right now, because if we understand Adam's struggle... We will understand not just humanity's struggle, but every single man's struggle as a descendant of Adam. All right, ladies, you will get your time when it comes. We like to be equal opportunity offenders, all right? But right now, we're going to go right at the men, all right? Because I want to see, I want you to start to look in your own heart to see that Adam in you, all right? So let's paint the picture how God did it. So God, in his wisdom and sovereignty, created an incredibly beautiful world. He created a world food, and for everything for man to enjoy. He places man in this beautiful world filled with no sin, beauty all around him, all the food he needs, everything else. He gives man a helper, this beautiful helper for him to love, care, and fully enjoy with every ounce of what we're talking about, fully enjoy all of the beauty right there in front of him. God not only does that, but places them in a garden and gave them everything they needed for an absolutely wonderful life. So if you want to know if is it really a wonderful life, you don't need to watch the Christmas version. All right, you just go right back to the garden to know what a wonderful life looks like. But what does Adam do? He looks at his creator and says, not good enough. I know what I really need. You thought you provided literally a world for me, everything we needed. And Adam, in rebellion against his creator, says, no, I know better. And how does he even do it? So far, Adam... During this whole time of rebellion, Adam has passively sat there watching everything under his care be destroyed by God. Watching Satan come in to the garden, watching Eve be tempted, and Adam sits there, everything that he's been given to care for, he sits passively by and watches it all burn and and be destroyed in front of him. What we pray, and if you're reading this text, you pray in verse 9, when the Lord called man and said, where are you? And now the man is ready to say, when he says, I heard you in the sound of the garden, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And when God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten you, the garden of the, of the fruit in the garden? You pray in verse 12, he says, yes, Lord, I did. Will you please forgive me? I rebelled against your holy character. This is what we pray. This is what we yearn for him to say, don't you? You want to sit there and say, Adam, take responsibility. You've, not just if you messed up a little bit, you've committed cosmic treason against your Savior and Creator. And you were just praying that Adam would say this. But what does Adam do? Instead of accepting responsibility, not only does he start putting blame, he puts blame on two people. Notice what he says. Who does he blame first? It was the woman you gave me. He blames God for the situation that he got in. His own creator, he's saying, if it wasn't for you giving me what 
this thing here, well, this never would have happened. It's amazing, none of us have ever done that right in our lives. He's basically saying, God, you did not do the right thing. When you thought that man should not be alone and you said it's not good for man to be alone, that's the problem, you're the problem, and she's the problem. But where does sin rest? Here's what happens, though. Sin blinds us to our real need as well as the real root of the problem. Sin blinds us to our real need as well as the root of the problem. Because where does the blame rest? In the one that has been given responsibility, it rests on him. And this blame game can be seen being played by every generation. And now, we as descendants of Adam, with the sin nature of Adam, we need to deal with this. Because here's the thing, when men do not accept responsibility, let alone responsibility in society, responsibility in their home, and responsibility in the church, the world suffers from it. When we get to the Adam consequence over here, I'll give you the statistics about when men do not do what God has called them to do in the the family alone. The statistics are massive. What happens to the rest of the family? You go down through it and you would go to the point going, what just happened there? And we'd say, it is huge. Because I I would argue that not only in the church and in the home, but in society as well, men play a massive role in the morality of society and where things go. But because of Adam and his sin, Sadly, men after men after men have sat passively by and just watched the world go burning down the tubes and wonder, what are we going to do about it? One of the number one struggles right now in morality right now is that, sadly, we have generations growing up where the men are not even doing what God has called them to do, working, let alone even being spiritual figures in the society. Because where the men go in society literally goes society. And we need to remember that that is huge across the board. And so when we think through this, here's what's in front of us. It's only a matter of time. It was funny, we were doing some thinking as Pastor Caleb and I, and he was starting to plan when does Tim retire and things like that. And I went, I'm not dead yet, all right? You don't need to put my foot in the ground, all right? And, but as we were walking through this, it was almost shattering how quickly a new generation of, of Christian leaders need to be risen from this church. And if we are not working on raising godly men, the, literally the torch that is passed from one generation to the next is at stake. So this is not some small thing that we're entering into. So you younger men do not think one day I can become a godly man and serve God. Today is the day you start working on that. Because the church, not only CBC, but the church at large needs you as men to step up and to be godly men and making a huge impact in our world. But what is in front of you every single day is because of Adam, our passivity is going to cause us to want to sit back and just allow sin to take place and then sit there and go, it's not my fault. I wonder where you got that from. You got it from Adam. Here's what's happening, though, too. I want to spend a little bit of time. I'm going to take a a side note here and work through the challenges in front of us here. So real quick. So we all deal with issues. We all deal with struggles. And what is happening around us, there is a verbiage that is starting to come to us that has infiltrated not only secular counseling, but is starting to impact our church as well, how we talk, what we say, and all of these things. There's a way of thinking, and I'm going to label it modern secular counseling to help you define what secular is. So real quick, quick. secularism, which is a belief 
that there is spiritual things and there are secular, or you want to call it social things. But in these two, there is a massive wall that is between them. And so if you see it in society, society cannot impact the spiritual, nor can the spiritual impact society. So if you're a secularist, there is no God, or God is irrelevant. We get phrases like this all throughout our society, the separation of church and state. If you're sitting there, let's just say you volunteer as a police chaplain. They say to you, you can use your spiritual things only if you want to use spiritual things. If they don't want, you need to set aside your spiritual things and talk to them about it over here. Try talking to someone about hope without using spiritual things. It's really hard because you go, let me explain to you real quick. The reason why you're sad that this hopeless life died that was not going anywhere anyway because there is no hope. The reason why you're sad that that hopeless life died is because your hopeless life is continuing on. What hope do I have to give them if there is no God or nothing? It's just stardust going to turn into stardust. I mean, welcome to the world we live in. And what has happened is this has moved into our secular thinking. This has moved in even to our Christian thinking. And so here's what happens. Modern secular counseling, so if you come to someone with an issue, here's where they start. If there is no God and that man is not a sinner, here's what they say. Man is by nature naturally good. The Bible tells us somewhere different, but they say man is by nature naturally good. Because, let's be honest, just what Adam, remember Adam wanted to run from God when the Word of God confronts, but the sinful heart wants to be coddled. The Word of God, when it confronts the heart, man runs from it, but what does man really want in their natural sinful state is to be coddled. So the solution given to us by modern secular counseling is that all of your problems, here where all of your problems are, they're external. They're environmental, they're parental, they're your friends, they're your, the society is the problem. All of the issues are outside of you. And the answer then they say is, so if you just believe in yourself, or here's the other one, if you did more self-care, then all the problems will just go away. But here's what the problem is with all of these things. The Bible does not call us to go toward self. It tells us to put away self, to deny ourselves, take up a cross and follow me. It does not say, here, when you have all these anxieties, when you have all of these worries, if you went and got an ice cream cone, if you petted a dog, if you did all of these other things, go to all of these other things. Literally, God's Word tells us, and you should know this, 1 Peter 5, 7, we spent a wee bit of time in there, literally says, taking all your anxieties and doing what? Casting them on Him because He cares for you. The answer is not look towards self. The answer is look towards God. But what happens is we have bought the lie that all of your problems are external. And here's how it plays out. It plays out even in the criminal world. So when a crime is committed, who is the real victim? We are wrestling with this all throughout society. First, if you want to know who the real victim is in a crime, well, it depends on who the victim is. So if you are the victim, but you're a person, as society decided, is one of privilege, whatever that means, the fault now is yours because the crime is committed against you because you were a person of privilege, and they were a person of lacking privilege. Or, let's go right to the heart of the issue, if a transgender person has been told by her surroundings that their activities are wrong because they go against what the Bible says, and she gets angry and kills people, the real victim is the shooter who shot everybody because society was telling her she was wrong. Do you see the blame game? 
Because when ethics and morality are no longer an external standard given to us by a creator, we then turn to popularity. And so here's what happens. It was a quote from someone. I couldn't find who said it, but somebody said it other than me. The usual moral distinction between good and bad are simply drowned in a muddle of emotion in which we feel more sympathy for the murderer than for the murdered for the adulterer than for the betrayed, and in which we actually have begun to believe the real guilty party is the one who caused, the one who caused it all is the victim, not the perpetrator of the crime. We have literally gotten to the point where we reversed it all. So a, school, a girl comes in who has been wrestling with her gender. She shoots up a Christian school. And who are the real people? Who are the real victims? All of those teachers who told her what she, her lifestyle, that her sin lifestyle she was choosing was wrong. She is the real victim, not the people that are laying there dead. This blame game is nothing new. This blame game is everywhere we go. And so then, listen to the way the world takes it. So go back to Adam. What does Adam first do? God, it's your fault. And this, ga- this game that is being played plays out right now. Because the answer the world says is the biblical worldview is really the problem. You guys are the problem, not the sinner. You standard holders, you light bearers are the problem because we wouldn't really realize how dirty the room is if you didn't turn the light on. So when you come in with a gospel, which is the light, what do you think sinful man is going to do? Run from it and blame you for exposing them of their sin. Now, real quick, before you go, yeah, you go Adam, Pastor Tim. I'm talking to you. I'll pull a Paul Washer here. I don't know what you're clapping about. It's you that I'm talking about. What do we do? We do the same thing over and over and over again. There's certain parts of Scripture, let's be honest, we don't like to read through because it exposes your heart. There's certain activities you go, I'm going to just leave those over there because I'm not going to be confronted by it. But we all know those. It's easy for us to point the finger at everybody else. It's easier for us to do what Adam does. If it wasn't my environment. How about this? If my spouse was more loving, or if my kids were less this, or if my boss was more like this, or keep, keep it going. All you're doing is you're doing a good job there, Adam. All right? Not only this, he says, God, it's your fault. You gave me this. But notice what Adam has done. The sin of Adam has blinded him. So instead of seeing Eve as the gift that she truly is, he is saying that this is a bad thing you gave me. This woman that you gave me. At one time, he's singing her praises, and now he goes, whoa, God, you messed up, and you don't even know the woman you gave me. All right? He's blaming everybody else, not himself. And Adam, as the leader of the family, is now starting to set the tone for this, literally, the only family on earth. So you would literally say, he's got the tone set for all future families. What happens next? Look at the text here. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. In Ephesians 5, we're not going to spend time on that, I'm just going to just give you the, what it says. Ephesians chapter 5 clearly tells us that the husband is the head of the home. It says he is the head of the wife. The husband here literally sets the tone for the family. 
Biblically speaking, this is called inescapable headship. Headship that you cannot escape. That's what the word inescapable means. That means if you are a man and you are married to a woman, you are the head of the family, whether you like it or not. You literally signed up for it when you got married. You, by definition, are the head of the family. It doesn't say the man ought to be the head. That doesn't say the man is the head if the wife allows him to be the head of the family. It literally says the man is the head of the family, and you set the tone of the family. But what are you going to be tempted to do as a descendant of Adam? Blame who for all of your family problems? The one next to me. Eve follows the example of her husband. What does Eve do? Blames the serpent. Eve blames the serpent. It's interesting, though. Notice what she says. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, if you want to go back, let's on a very basic level, all the serpent does is ask questions. All the serpent does is ask questions. He does not bring any conclusion. He asks questions. And if you want to look at that text, it literally says, Eve, when she desired it, she saw it, she wanted to do this. It's exactly what James, verses 13 through 15, tells us. Here's what James says. Let no one say when, she is, when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts, tempts no one. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then when desire is conceived, brings birth to sin, and when sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It is interesting in my time spent a little bit around some law enforcement guys, it is clear they can literally tell you if you see enough people who are really deep into sin, you can literally see it in their body. You can literally watch how they function. You could pick out different people that are dealing with different drugs. Literally, their body tells you. You can see it. Because literally, sin's in impact not only spiritually kills you, but it literally kills you physically as well. We see this all around us. You can see those who are anxious, who are worrying, or whatever, what it does to the body. You can see even the physical effects of sin, let alone the spiritual impact as well. This is why, again, reminding us that sin blinds you to the real problem. Sin blinds you to the real problem. I want to be very clear on that. Sin blinds you. Sin has blinding impacts in your life to the point where you sit there, you are literally breaking laws. And you have the audacity to tell the cop who pulls you over that can you believe that the cop doesn't understand that it's my day to break laws. And because, you know, I am the judge, the jury, right? And I've decided that today is my day because you are late for work. And whose fault is that? Yours. That you are going to now tell the cop that today is my day that I can break a law, and if the cop looks at you and says, oh, I understand, literally what the cop should look at you and say, that sounds familiar. Sounds like Genesis chapter 3. And that would really throw you there for a second. You'd be like, wait a minute. Try that sometime, Mac, and we'll see how that goes. Sin blinds you to the real problem because it causes you to blame others and your surroundings, not the real issue. It was interesting. There's a, a book that my wife read through, I'm just starting to read through it. Um, Allison said it's really good. I'm not putting my stamp approval yet on until I read it. It's called Psychobabble. It's a dealing with the modern psychobabble of our society. And it was interesting. It was talking about in this how we have so drifted away. So in a battle, we're more concerned with how the soldiers feel than actually do the soldiers have the ability to deal with their feelings and keep fighting. 
We have so lost, really, what's going on around us. We're more concerned with how they feel than actually do they have the ability to deal with their feelings and keep functioning. And what has happened in Christianity, we start listening to all of this gibberish that literally is coming at us, and we start to think at the end of the day, your feelings are what matters. And I would argue, at the end of the day, truth is what matters, because truth shapes your feelings. You don't feel your way into if this is sin or not. Well, it doesn't feel like sin to me. I don't care what you feel. All right, let's be honest. Your feelings change all the time. You wake up in the morning and I have feelings that I have, and I have feelings that come this way or that way. You don't want to know how I feel. You want to know what I believe because what I believe impacts how I live. And the question in front of us is, each one of us stands here and we say, can you believe Adam? But all of us, and I'll do this out, all y'all, just in case you're wondering, we all deal with this every single day. You know who's really, really good at coming up with reasons why they do what they do is myself. Because as your pastor, you know, pastors don't make mistakes, all right? We just, we, we, how, I don't even know how you would call it. We just fudge the corners. Because, you know, all of you are allowed to sin, but who's not allowed to sin? The pastor. You know, like, you can be short, but if the pastor's short with somebody, oh. But guess what I am? I'm a sinner saved by grace just like you. Oh, talk to Allison. She'll tell you. If you ever wonder, is Tim you know, the greatest guy in the world, she can tell you all of my mistakes, all right? But here's what we have, though. We have a Savior who has came and died and lived the perfect life that none of us will ever be able to live. That is why the song that I pray that we sing over and over and over again, all of the characters in that Christ is the better Adam, he's the better everybody, all right? And I love that picture of it. As we go through the book of Genesis, we will see that over and over and over again. So where does the issue really lie? The issue lies at the heart of man. Jeremiah last week reminded us in Jeremiah 7 that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? So what is the answer? What is the conclusion of the whole matter? The answer is this. The problem to sin in this world is not going to be found by blaming others, environment, and fill in the blank. I want to help you out here real quick. All of you have been parented by sinners. Do not blame your parents. Adam, if he had parents at that time, would have blamed him because what did he do? He blamed his parent, which is who? God himself. So blaming your parents is not anything new. The answer is found by understanding that each person has broken the law of God and are guilty before a holy judge. But the great news is this, that the holy judge did not wait for mankind to clean himself up. The holy judge did not sit there and say, Adam, when you figure out the whole loincloth thing, when you got the whole nakedness thing figured out, then you can come. Get yourself cleaned up. What God did, he was the initiator. Literally, the Bible tells us Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came and lived the perfect life, paid the penalty for sin, and rose again, conquering death. So there is no sting in death. There is hope. Hope can be found in him and him alone. The only answer for all of our sin struggles is repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what He has done. If you have not done that yet in this room, I'm going to strongly encourage you, today is the day of salvation. On your way out, if you do not know Christ, please stop, and we won't go until we've talked through it. So all of the conclusion, when all is said and done, I want to remind us again of a statement that has been said a couple of times. Because when we look at this sin stroke, and we look at this disaster that is happening in front of us, you look at Adam, our representative, let's just say if he had a 
test that day, he would have gotten an F minus. All right? Not doing anything God has called him to do. As we stand hopelessly at this moment here, there is no hope right now in this passage yet. It's coming. God is moving. Where's the hope? We'll see it in Genesis 3.15. We're going to see some amazing hope. But we want to see, you need to see the hopelessness of Adam first until we see the beauty of God. You need to get a contrast there, all right? So in the middle of this, literally, if you want to call it, in my brain, I see the storm clouds coming in, you know, the dark clouds are forming type of deal. And what is that ray of hope? The ray of hope is something we have said everything over and over again is this. Everything God does is perfect and completely wise and is the fittest means to accomplish everything he has decreed. This is all working together for the glory of God and God alone. The answer is the gospel. The answer is Christ himself. Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, as we see once again the failure of Adam, but the beauty of your Son, may we stand in all of it, reminding ourselves over and over and over again that it is you and you alone that we desperately need. We ask these things in your Son's name we pray. Amen.